0: Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being here on this Tuesday. Busy show coming up. We're going to talk more about the discussions taking place today about lifting the border restrictions between the United States and Canada. Reggie Cicchini, who is our correspondent in Washington, is keeping tabs on that. And he'll bring us the very latest right after the 12.30 news. Also going to talk about BC parks. You might recall last year there were a lot of issues with the day pass program having to go ahead at 6 o'clock at the earliest of the morning of to make sure and secure a spot in a provincial park. Well, the BC government has tweaked the process, but there is still going to be that day pass reservation system for some parks, and we're going to talk about that in the second hour of the program. Right now, we are revisiting a topic that we discussed on the show yesterday, and a lot of people called the buzz line. I got a lot of email about this, talking about the proposed residential parking tax In Vancouver, the climate emergency parking permit program, where residents are currently being asked to give their feedback to Vancouver City Council. Well, joining me now is Sandy James, a city planning consultant and managing director with Walk Metro Vancouver. Sandy, thanks so much for being with us. Hi. Good afternoon, Joe. Uh, I know you've written about this as well and raised some issues and some really good points on what is being proposed and what that will actually do in the City of Vancouver. So what is your response to a couple of things? One, making all neighbourhoods in Vancouver residential permit parking and then we'll talk a bit more about polluting vehicles as well. But what are your thoughts on making that permit for every neighbourhood in the City?
1: Well, Joe, I think we're the only city in Canada that has considered um, charging uh, a charge for you to park a vehicle overnight on a residential street. We would be the first one. Um, what what the proposal is, is is twofold. One is that you would be, be paying an annual cost of $45 to park on your residential street. And the second part is if you um, have a vehicle that you buy after 2023, that is a gas-powered vehicle that you would be paying a tax between 500 to one hundred to $1,000 annually for keeping that vehicle. Now, now the problem with the whole thing, Jill, is that uh, a vehicle at rest stays at rest, so you're, you're really being paid to keep a boat anchor on the street. Mm-hmm. The second piece is uh, they're, they're trying to tie it in with um, climate change and pollution, and I note that they think that 39% of uh, emissions. Uh, uh, I got that wrong. For carbon, 39% is carbon emissions coming from, from cars. The other uh, bigger one is coming from uh, natural gas buildings. So the question is, are the cars in Vancouver staying at rest, or are they actually the ones that are causing the pollution emission? The second question is, is this an equitable tax to do? If if you are parking on street, is that because you're a renter, you're doing shift work, um, you don't have access to private parking off street because individuals that are parking off street or in garages will be exempt from both taxes.
0: Right. And that was one of the questions or issues that was raised yesterday. If somebody goes and buys a brand new gas-powered truck or whatever type of vehicle, rather than park it on the street, if they have the option, they move it into the garage, how does that fight climate change?
1: That's correct. So it's more an issue of equity. Now, the city is seeing, I believe there's like 200,000 parking spaces in the city and 150,000 um, could potentially be uh, be residential and charged this way Uh, but but the the real thing is is this the right what what is the problem the city is trying to solve in terms of revenue they would be looking at getting about 60 million dollars over four years um, and they have not they've been very soft in saying what that money will be used for it will certainly be used for um, some of their city programs and they hope to fund about 30 percent of what they want to do in terms of climate change with that money But but again, the other question is, is this the right approach? Is it better to look at uh, climate change more on a regional basis and come up with some kind of structure where, as a region, we can move towards uh, better transportation and accessible transportation in, in Vancouver?
0: Right, because we're talking about neighbourhoods as well. The further we get out, and that's the reason why we're told the 10% of the neighbourhoods that currently have permit parking, I live in one of them, is because they are closer to the downtown. There's more of a demand for the parking there. There's also more access to transit and more access to other ways of getting around. Some of the residential or, or residential neighbourhoods in the city, there isn't ready access to transit. And somebody could make the argument that there's a very good reason why they have a vehicle and why they park it on the street.
1: That's correct. And also remember that many people that live in the south parts of Vancouver also service the region, either as care workers, first responders, or um, contractors um, doing work throughout the region to require a vehicle. And also in South Vancouver, there may be as many as 10 different people living in one house. So part of it is um, it's a broad brush approach. Also, Jill, in the residential parking area you live in, Residential parking is only was used to only be brought in when the community demanded it. And we have two kinds. There's residential permit parking, as in the West End, and there's resident parking only. The first one is a permit system. The second one is uh, enforced upon the demand of residents if they see someone that shouldn't be there parking. So it's, this is a change in the way that they're structuring it to be a top-down approach versus a bottom-up from the community. But also, um, I think we have to be very clear about
0: what problem is trying to solve. And also, when we talk about the uh, the pollution charge, and that's the annual tax of 500 to to $1,000, depending on what kind of gas-powered vehicle somebody has, I, I don't have the hard evidence on this. But my guess is, if we looked into it, if you are driving a very old vehicle and you're parking that vehicle in the street or you're using it no matter how much you're using it, it, that, that old vehicle probably pollutes more than a brand new vehicle with all the new technology. Uh, yes, but Jill, we have politicians at City Hall. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they know
1: the likelihood of something going through that would immediately um, go for the vehicles that are currently on the road would be a problem. And I'm in the same way. I have a 20-year-old vehicle. Uh, am I going to replace it? No. Do I drive uh, less than 1,000 kilometers a year? Yes. And is it because I'm going to, am I in an area that's not well-serviced by, by transit? Yes. So it's a matter of how we get transit and make it appealing and easy to use and functional, as opposed to how do we charge people to park on the street. And, and also, it's, it, the assumption is also that 39, uh, the, the 39% of pollution is coming from Vancouver vehicles. Right. And I would argue that pollution does not stop at our border. I think it's a regional issue. And I would sure like to see this conversation take place with Metro Vancouver. Uh, as we know, the gas tax, which is 18.5% is going to, uh, or 18.5 cents, is not going to be happening once we go to um, uh, electric vehicles. So how do we collect that? And isn't this really a regional problem
0: um, that, that we, we need to solve at a re- regional basis? It's a, it's a good question, and you're right. It's not as though when vehicles drive into the city limits of Vancouver from anywhere else in Metro Vancouver or the Lower Mainland, they suddenly, suddenly stop polluting, or that's not part of, part of the issue. That's correct. And part of it is it's, it's,
1: uh, the pollution doesn't stop at our border. So, so it's really asking what is the question that the tax is trying to solve. And I think the city is trying to create more revenue. Uh, which sixty million over four years sounds pretty good, but they'll also have to be bringing in. Um, they're suspecting it will cost them about five hundred thousand to a million to administer the program. they they've already gone out for a request for proposals for vehicles that will be able to sense license plates and read them, and they're expecting to get that technology in three vehicles and they may go up to as many as fourteen. so it's 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 part of talking about how as a region, we want to support accessibility and mobility without using vehicles.
0: Doesn't that seem a little strange, too, that and this has been raised also in how are they going to know that I've purchased a new vehicle or what year my vehicle is unless they're accessing my ICBC records? And in what's an initiative that seems to be the goal, getting vehicles off the streets, they're going to put vehicles on the streets to scan people's vehicles. I mean, I wonder how much it's going to cost. They they say between 500 and a million, but that doesn't even seem to include all the different areas they're going to have to access.
1: Well, that's correct, and I don't think ICBC um, would would be giving them access to that data, so it would have to be ground-truthing based on actually looking at what cars are sitting on the street. Now, maybe another approach that could be done through the city or by the province that would negate all of this is simply asking the province for permission through ICBC to add a small tax onto Vancouver uh, resident um, licenses and, and insurance. That would be another approach, and that could be something that could be done regionally. But, I mean, we're still doing that dance around a congestion cost charge uh, of not, not charging people to go through zones of the city when we're driving. So I think this is just an approach to try to, to get some funding um, overall for some of the programs. And they're also trying to do it in a way that it's not going to displease a whole bunch of people.
0: All right. Well, not sure they've met that goal, given some of the response to this. Uh, Sandy James, will leave it there for today, though. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this. Always a pleasure. Take care, Joe. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, meetings underway today, U.S. and Canadian officials meeting to discuss how to eventually lift the border restrictions that are in place because of the pandemic. So what exactly can we expect from these meetings? Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent, joins us now. Reggie, thanks so much for taking the time. Good afternoon. What are uh, what is being discussed and, and are we going to get any clear indication of the border opening or when that might happen from today's meeting?
2: Uh, no. So uh, the meeting that's underway today, uh, this kind of working group that was put in place by the White House, or at least announced uh, earlier this month, uh, taking place between U.S. and Canadian officials, between U.S. and Mexican officials, between uh, U.S. and EU and U.K. officials. These are going to be meetings that take place twice a month. Uh, the information of the meetings isn't really being put out uh, in the public realm right now. Uh, but uh, when I was talking to someone in the White House earlier today, uh, I was told that, while the meeting is taking place, that nothing was going to be imminent coming out of the meeting today. These are kind of the very beginnings uh, of how to figure out the logistics involved with rolling back the restrictions at the border. We were given kind of an indication uh, not all that long ago in the last couple of days when uh, both President Biden uh, and Prime Minister Trudeau uh, didn't have any kind of firm, concrete uh, uh, information to provide to the public. So while these are beginning steps and while they are something that have been called for uh, by lawmakers really on both sides of the border, We're not expecting anything, at least on the U.S. side, uh, when these restrictions uh, end uh, or rather uh, when this latest round of restrictions ends on the 21st.
0: Right. So and I guess what we're hearing from people, uh, officials and and those who are kind of close to the talks are that that uh, the expiry of June 21st, that is going to be extended.
2: Yeah, and and we heard that from Ottawa today as well that you know things are going to be discussed over the next couple of days, but there's not going to be likely a broad announcement, especially here in the United States where Joe Biden really has made July 4th the Independence Day holiday, uh, the kind of nexus for where he wants uh, everyone to be at when it comes to uh, vaccinations in the United States. He set a goal for 70 percent of Americans to have at least one shot by July 4th. So it's hard to see how the U.S. would try to potentially announce something before the president's goal. Uh, but also understanding here that well. The 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 U.S. is doing uh, well uh, when it comes to its vaccination rate. Uh, Canada still uh, not in the ballpark of where the U.S. is for fully vaccinated. The same situation for Mexico. And we've already heard that the U.K. is going to be delaying their reopening because of the resurgence uh, or the emergence of the Delta variant there. There are logistics that the U.S. needs to work out, but it really is aggravating a lot of U.S. lawmakers, particularly those uh, from the border states who are arguing that these restrictions need to be lifted because it's impacting their local communities, especially in the tourism sector.
0: And do you get any idea that the United States could unilaterally make a decision or are they going to make a decision along with Canada and Mexico?
2: So I've posed this to people uh, in both the White House and at the National Security Council uh, a couple of times now, uh, and they've kind of beat around the bush and they haven't given a direct yes, they haven't given a direct no as to how the U.S. would intend to do this. Uh, I think that it could potentially sour relations between the U.S. and Canada if one decided to go one route while the other was still trying to figure out uh, another route. We've heard from uh, from the Prime Minister that he uh, is going to be in conversation with different premiers to figure out how they best want to reopen the border. We know in Ontario, uh, Premier Doug Ford has been kind of vehemently opposed to the borders reopening, saying that that's the cause uh, for some of the most recent spikes with their numbers, uh, with the variants kind of running around. Uh, but in the United States, these conversations aren't really taking place with governors. They're not taking place between the White House uh, and you know people like from the Northern Border Caucus, which deal uh, with cross-border issues here. So it's hard to see one country doing it without the other being on board. But again, the logistics uh, still need to be worked out because they're still, unlike that's happening in the EU with a potential passport here, there is no way for Americans or Canadians to kind of verify that they're, that they're vaccinated. Uh, so the honor system really is going to play key here.
0: Right, because that's one of the thoughts also, that it could open to fully vaccinated people. And like you said, then what are you going to be asked to produce when you go to the border crossing?
2: Precisely. And and also, you know, what happens to these lineups if, if Canada is going to reopen the border potentially to just vaccinated Canadians? What happens if vaccinated Canadians are traveling in a vehicle and they have Americans with them that are vaccinated? But because they're not Canadians, does that get in the way of any kind of potential quarantine here? I think that's the slowdown uh, that you're seeing criticized uh, from U.S. law. Makers ...who are really looking at Canada saying, look, our numbers are good down here, your numbers are getting better, the vaccination rate is high, uh, why is there no kind of public discussion taking place, or at least why is the information from these working groups and from the bilaterals that are taking place at lower levels from the federal government, uh, why is that not being put out in the public? Because again, we've heard it's easy to close down the border and simply put a blockade in place, but to reopen it, you run the risk of potentially undoing some of the success that one country has seen, uh, that the other country might not be seeing... That is where some of the concern lies outside of the group of lawmakers that are trying to push the border to reopen.
0: And when you mention that success as well, we're certainly seeing that or what are we seeing when it comes to New York State and California as well?
2: Yeah, well, look, New York State, California reopening. The numbers there uh when it comes to vaccinations are better than where they are elsewhere around the country. California, it's a different story. It's still less than one person in two being fully vaccinated, uh, but they feel they're in a position right now to be able to kind of lift back their restrictions. That's kind of driving some of these calls to say, look, if states are gonna be reopening, if we're gonna have no restrictions in place, we should start to allow for that movement of people uh across the borders. The issue in the United States right now uh is really located in the southern US us where the vaccine rates have really lagged behind those uh, of states uh, further north and further west where in parts of alabama and louisiana you're seeing vaccination rates especially amongst the younger population as low as 10 percent either single shot uh, or double shot and this is problematic because in the u.s the alpha variant really has been the dominating uh, variant for the last couple of months Uh, delta is now starting to pose a problem and i was speaking to a doctor yesterday who fears that after we get through the summer there is likely going to be another spike in the south if these numbers don't increase which again poses more problems uh to travel if the borders start to reopen uh and again it drives home that message as to what are the conversations about what do we do now but also what do we do down the road
0: and is it vaccine hesitancy or do we know exactly why in some of those southern states the numbers are so low
2: it depends on where you are. Some of the states, it has to do with vaccine hesitancy. I mean, over the weekend, we saw uh, uh, pictures coming out of Texas, even up as far as Indiana, where healthcare workers workers uh, were some of the driving force behind uh, the people who are choosing to not get a shot right now, which is obviously creating uh, a kind of stressful situation uh, inside hospitals. Uh, but we're also still seeing vaccine uh, uh, equity playing a role in people not being able to get a vaccine, people uh, not trusting the science because the information really has been skewed depending on which political party potentially is putting the message out there it is leading to a driving call not only from the white house but also from the centers for disease control to just tell people to get out and get vaccinated because while you are hearing stories that there are potential side effects to any of the vaccines that are out there doctors are saying that the benefits still outweigh the risks and if everyone does their uh kind of you know plan to go out and get vaccinated it does allow for things to happen a lot quicker like getting back to normal and like letting the borders reopen
0: All right, Reggie, thanks so much for your time today. We'll check in with you again, but thanks for this. Thank you. Well, as we know, the weather is going to keep getting better and better this week. That means that more people are going to be heading outdoors. Hopefully, it's a trend that continues through the month and into the summer. That means more British Columbians will be heading to BC Parks. But there is the pilot plan is going to be back at some BC Parks. That means it's a little more than just getting up and going out into the wilderness. You will have to take some steps first. And joining me to talk about which parks are going to be part of this this year is george Heyman, minister of the environment and climate change strategy in bc george Heyman, thanks so much for being with us
3: my pleasure joe good afternoon
0: good afternoon what can people expect then as far as securing those day passes when heading out to some of the parks that tend to be the busier ones in bc
3: well we're uh we're doing the second season of this pilot program we've removed mount seymour and cyprus from the day use pass program because it, uh following consultation it looked like it wasn't really necessary in order to keep manageable numbers in the parks but what we're trying to do in the busiest parks is ensure that people who visit just for a day uh, don't feel uh, like they're overcrowded don't run into situations where there's no room in the parking lot don't have their uh, their plans ruined and uh, also very importantly don't overwhelm the the natural environment uh, by uh, overcrowding the trails damaging them damaging vegetation so the change we've made this year is we're now allowing um uh, booking of uh, the day use pass starting at 7 a.m the day before you wish to use it we're also uh having morning and afternoon bookings so we can accommodate more people than uh, we were able to last year and be more efficient about it and we're also uh Um, going to be monitoring on an ongoing basis to ensure that we're getting as many people comfortably and safely into the park as possible who want to go for a day experience.
0: Uh, So it sounds like this was first brought in because of crowding and more because of COVID-19 but now it's being done more because of crowding in the environment.
3: It was introduced uh, last summer uh, partly as a response to COVID-19. Certainly we're seeing Lots of British Columbians unable to travel, uh, rediscovering BC parks or in some cases discovering the parks for the first time. And uh, We're building up uh, a whole new uh, generation of park users and we're seeing uh, usage expand. But we were actually talking about day use before that. We had some parks like Joffrey Lakes. I don't know if you've seen the pictures, Joe, but Mm -hmm. it can get uh, so overwhelmingly crowded there that it's not really like being in nature you're there but you're there with so many people that it's uh it takes away from the experience and it's, it can be very overwhelming to the natural environment if people are going off trail widening the trail uh, uh, leading to um to changes in the hydrology or uh or all kinds of uh, damage to vegetation. So Joffrey Lakes is a perfect example of that. And uh, and that's one of the places we have the day-use But in the south coast in the, the, of the last decade, 2010 to 2019, uh, we saw an over 50% uh, increase in, uh, in visitations in the parks in that period. And in Joffrey Lakes, it was 222% uh, increase over a 10-year period. So we... Uh, We need to ensure that people are safe in the parks. Uh, It won't always be a pandemic, but we need room for social distancing at this time still. uh, We want to protect the natural environment and we want to protect people's uh, experience of nature. We want people to have a good experience and not feel crowded out. Uh,
0: So how is it going to be enforced as far as if somebody is in there and doesn't have a day pass? How are they going to be caught and what happens?
3: Well, in partnership with the Parks Foundation, we have over 30 Discover Parks ambassadors who are uh, in the South Coast region, and they will be checking passes at parking lots and some trailheads, and if uh, people don't have the pass, uh, they won't be allowed in. Uh, People can be fined if they're in the park without a day pass, but we've been relying on uh, on education and goodwill uh, for both this and our general reservation system where we were uh, asking people from out of province to, uh, to not book uh, during the pandemic. Our experience is uh, there's a very, very high degree of compliance. So we'll continue to focus on the education component and the, and the parks ambassadors also. If people show up without a day pass, uh, they will help them make a reservation if there's one to be made. Uh, and uh, assuming that uh, they're in a place where there's actual uh, cell service and they can get online to do it. So we'll do everything we can to accommodate people, but we uh, we want people to be respectful of both the park, the environment, and their neighbours.
0: And so were any tickets handed out last year?
3: Uh, to the best of my recollection, no. We relied on an educational approach with people. If uh, people were uh, there without a A pass. We talked to them about why the passes were in effect, helped them make a booking, and as I said, Jill, um, a high level of understanding and a a high level of compliance. I think most people who uh, want to go experience uh, parks want a a quiet uh, experience where they can get in touch with nature and I think uh, people really understand when we're trying to protect the environment and uh, and protect people's quiet enjoyment of our beautiful parks.
0: Right. and But if that's the goal, aren't Mount Seymour Park and Cypress Park two of the busiest parks so where people, simply because they are close and people can access them?
3: They're busy, they're close, but they have uh, good parking capacity. They have uh, a lot of trails, and believe me, if we thought... Uh, they were likely to be overcrowded, uh, as in the other parts, we would have kept the day use pass system there. But as part of our consultation and part of our observation, we felt we could proceed without the day use pass in those two parts. We're not, uh, we're certainly not looking to limit British Columbians' access to parks, uh, especially this year when we know we're uh, we're pretty much all going to be staying home. If that changes, if we see crowding, I think we'll we'll be in a position to respond. As I said, Jill, this is a a pilot project we're uh we're learning as we go but it's been well received so far it's been well received by park operators well received by the canadian parks and uh, wilderness society well received by the search and rescue people Uh, we're going to continue to try to make it better but most importantly continue to make bc parks as uh, as good as we can make them for the many British Columbians who want to enjoy them.
0: Is there a, an education component needed as well? Then, when you talk about this, is about uh, keeping the parks pristine, making sure they're not damaged. Is it the sheer number of people, or is it what people are doing? Are they leaving garbage? Are they damaging, going out of their way? Because you would think, even if there's a lot of people, if you're being respectful of nature and the outdoors, you shouldn't be damaging it. So why why are they getting damaged?
3: Well, some of the damage is uh, crowded trails, and when we're asking people to socially distance, then if the trails were narrow, people were moving off-trail, which creates uh, uh, does create some uh, damage that can uh, be to uh, vegetation. It can call, cause soil erosion or trail widening. Uh, in some cases, uh, people do leave garbage beside, behind, and I've never been able to figure that out. But our experience last year with the day-use passes in Garibaldi Park was a very significant uh, decrease in garbage. And for the first time ever, uh, as a result of uh, the decrease in garbage, there were no reports of human-wildlife conflict, which was uh, not something we were expecting, but was certainly a pleasant surprise. As part of the education, that's the role of the the ambassador program that we put in place. They'll be talking to people, they'll be educating them about... uh, Respectful and environmentally sensitive use of the parks uh, and as well as how to be safe. There's other organizations as well, like Adventure Smart that has good information on their websites, and uh, I think uh, I think British Columbians respond well to uh, to uh, friendly advice and education about the areas they're in.
0: All right. We will leave it there for today. George Heyman, Minister of Environment and Climate Change Strategy in BC. Thanks so much for your time today.
3: Thanks so much, Joe. And to everybody else, get out and enjoy our parks. They're wonderful in the summer.
0: We were just talking with George Heyman, Minister of the Environment and Climate Change Strategy in BC, talking about the parks program. Starting June 22nd, people will have to get free day passes for certain parks in the province of British Columbia. And as the minister mentioned, this is to cut down on huge crowds, on damage being caused in parks, and also allowing people to be able to socially distance. Well, what does the BC Mountaineering Club think of this? The president of that club, Chris Ludwig, joins me on the line now. Chris, thanks so much for being with us.
4: Good afternoon, Jill. Uh,
0: I know there were a lot of glitches, a lot of problems with this system last year. Uh, George Heyman, the minister, uh, saying that a lot of those have been tweaked, have been dealt with. What are your thoughts on the fact that this form of the day pass is coming back into place?
3: Well, we're
4: spending $83 million and we're getting less than what we had before the eighty three million dollars so we have no new trails in that eighty three million dollars we still have the problems of user displacement and uh... what we've gotten as an improvement from last year's is basically one day in advance in the booking so one day ahead so we're still going to have mass user displacement and we don't have any investment in new trail infrastructure so we have decreased capacity increased demand and uh, no, no means in the reservation software to allow for cancellation. So I uh, I don't see that's good value for the $83 million. Uh,
0: so a cancellation if somebody, say, like you said, so you can now book 7 a.m. the day prior to your arrival, but then if something comes up and you can't make it, as far as people know, as far as the, the government knows, you're still going on that reservation. It's not like it opens up for somebody else.
4: That's correct. And... Um, uh, I mean, given that there's going to be less capacity still uh, on a number of these trails, um, uh, where are these people going to go? So it would have been nice to see some of the 83 million, you know, used to increase infrastructure so that we, we actually had increased capacity. But we're getting a decreased capacity and the rationale still is not clear. Yes, you know, the minister talks about you know environmental damage, but it's not a methodology. We need quantifiable Data in terms of, of how many people can an area handle, and I still haven't seen that yet. So, those original questions we asked of the ministry uh, uh, in the last state pass system have not been answered, and uh, so we don't feel that the co- public consultation process has been uh, uh, very genuine, um, and that's why we actually want to see a third party audit of BC Parks in terms of their policy and decision making.
0: Uh, When you talk about the damage, and I asked the Minister this, what are people doing that's causing all of the damage? Is it the sheer numbers? Because we're not travelling for the most part, not travelling out of the province, more people are going into the parks. Is that what's causing damage? Or is it behaviour that people are leaving garbage or people aren't being respectful in some cases of the the parks and of the park space?
4: It's a combination of both, but this is not something that has started with COVID. It's been evolving for decades. Um, and uh, as we've spent less money on education, less money on trails, it's just we've simply been kicking the can down the road. And now, you know, limiting people is sort of a knee-jerk reaction to a lack of of, um, proactive uh, decision-making on um, backcountry recreation, which has so many health benefits and generates such economic activity for our local communities. So I don't see this as the right way to go. I mean, if we were to put in you know, user passes backed by sound methodology and heavily invest in uh, new opportunities so that we're not shrinking capacity, that would make sense. But I'm not seeing the sort of larger vision from the ministries. They seem to be reactive rather than proactive.
0: What are your thoughts on the fact that uh, those changes made, as we mentioned, the booking that you can go uh, 7 o'clock the day before rather than 6 a.m. the day of? Uh, they also said be- based on the stakeholder feedback, the day passes are no longer required for Mount Seymour Park or for Cypress Park?
4: That's a good, a good uh, step in the right direction, for sure. Um, but it still doesn't address the management issues there either. So again, that's inconsistency is, is why why then have the day pass for, for uh, Garibaldi and, and, and Golden Years, but not for those two parks. It's the lack of consistent thinking and rationale that, that is of concern to me. Uh, it seems to be Uh, uh, pretty incoherent.
0: Uh, And that's certainly what we heard last year when we were talking about this, particularly about golden ears as one of those, in that people who might live 10, 15 minutes from the park, uh, it takes away the opportunity to, say, at noon on a Saturday, maybe the sky's clear and you want to go for a hike. People saying it seemed kind of ridiculous that they couldn't go ride their bike or, or go for a hike spontaneously because they hadn't gone online and got this day pass.
4: Yeah, and of course, it's, it's you know, the, how are you measuring the capacity? You're measuring it by parking law. There's some indication from last year with caps were arbitrary that it was kind of based on parking capacity, too. But that's not the only way people get there. We don't want to encourage the only means of using parks to be by car. We would love to see bicycles and transit and all those more environmentally responsible means. Um, the other thing that I constantly point out is, is user caps on these parks. They don't impact people like my uh, me as much as, as say, uh, recent immigrants, poor people, uh, people new to the sport. Because you know, I've got a formal drive. I can, you know, if I can't get a pass, I can go somewhere else, which uh, with, dif- with a difficult access. But beginners to the sport who are affected the most um, by these policies because they do their start in these easier uh... well-maintained trails and they end up in desperation at the last moment uh... still one day ahead having to go to places like we maintain like water spray which is much harder and in many cases inappropriate for their skill set and uh... that's that's an ongoing concern and there's been no discussion Uh, presentation of what are the impacts of user displacement we feel them on the ground but the ministry has not been addressing or or dealing with that major concern Uh,
0: the minister said there were no tickets handed out last year that it was more of an educational campaign but do you know did it actually send people like you said to other areas did we have more incidents of people who weren't prepared avoiding these parks where you needed a day pass and going elsewhere
4: Yes, we have the user data on that. In fact, we had infrared trail cameras on our trails. some of them, like water sprite, which is directly across from one of the affected trails often, and the numbers doubled in uh, in uh, from the previous year. Uh, and I've been on that trail. I do trail maintenance, I lead trail crews. I see people in running shoes people going to a BC Parks Trail, displace and I talk to people at Trailhead A hey, we had we have nowhere else to go. Um, so the displacement is real, it's massive and the ministry is not addressing that issue.
0: All right. Chris Ludwig, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks so much for coming on and responding to this.
4: Thank you for your time, Jill.
0: If you have ever been in a bidding war for a new home, or perhaps you've been selling a home and the offers just came flying in, that is not unusual in the Vancouver housing market. It's not unusual in Toronto. And we have seen that happen throughout the pandemic. Something people sometimes do, and it's becoming more popular, is that personal touch. But... Is that leading to discrimination? Well, in the United States, in Oregon, some lawmakers say yes. And so they have passed a bill banning this particular practice of penning a love letter during a home sale. Joining me to talk more about this is Mark Meek, American Democratic politician in Oregon's House of Representatives. He's also a real estate agent. Mark Meek, thank you so much for being with us to talk more about this today.
5: You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me on.
0: Well, this is something we wanted to talk to you about because it is something that happens in B.C. quite often where the real estate market can be very competitive. This was also happening in Oregon. People writing personal letters or love letters, as they're often called, to try and get that upper hand or to have a bit of an edge when it comes to buying housing, when buying property. Oregon has now passed a bill that is going to make it so agents must reject that kind of communication. Why was it important, do you think, to do that?
5: And, you know, Jill, thank you so much for asking. Um, I've been a practicing uh, real estate agent broker for 25 years now. And um, this bill came from work that I uh, conducted as uh, co-chairing a task force addressing racial disparities in homeownership here in Oregon. And uh, um, through that process of about 18 months of work with this task force from people from different industries and different walks of life, Came to the, the determination that this little practice of this letter is perpetuating implicit biases that uh, really, um, you know, are unconscious but very, very damaging and harmful in when when in a, a seller selection of, if they can't base it on price and terms if they're going to this love letter and. In many cases, it also includes a photo of the family, a photo of the couple with their dog, with whatever. And uh, in many cases, the photo, to me, brought it more into context that this could be extenuating, you know, this or, ex- you know, continuing this uh, uh, discriminatory practice. And unwilling, unwittingly, uh, real estate agents have been participating in this
0: would it be better then or would it be okay do you think if it was a letter that was written but didn't give personal information about the family or about people it didn't give a or didn't include a picture didn't include something so that somebody might be deciding based on, on how somebody looked
5: right well that's that's similar unfortunately there's code and uh, and part of the the um, issue here is that a lot of folks will, mentioned I love to garden I'm looking forward to taking my children to the park right next door or we're friends with your neighbors next door Uh, we go to the church down the street Um, there's just too many practices in which different some of these um, basically what we call fair housing uh, words that if I was advertising in the uh, local publication here I would be redlined from being able to even state those, uh, terms, um, close to church, you know, near school. Um, it, they're not allowed in our advertising, but we're still allowing them in the communications. And I, and I think it's just important to eliminate that practice altogether.
0: Uh, I know there's been some pushback to this or people have been raising points also saying that there have been examples where somebody who doesn't have the best offer ends up getting the house because for whatever reason, what's ever included in that letter is appealing to the seller, be it uh, we're not going to demolish the house. We want to live here. We're not going to rent it out. We want to become part of the community. Um, mm-hmm. But but I know one of the arguments has been it has been helpful for people that otherwise keep getting priced out or keep are unable to make as good of an offer. What do you say to those arguments?
5: Yeah, um, I can can appreciate that. And I know it has been helpful for many buyers. And if you're in that winning seat, per se, if you're in a competitive uh, market and uh, your letter, how compelling it was, was, you know, um, successful in, in you winning that bid, who to say what the other parties? story was that they're not as eloquent in in conveying their message i just think it's it's a uh, you know in fair housing it, it's been unfortunate oregon for one has an ugly history of discrimin- discrimination from its inception and uh, these pra- these practices have continued through other you know in- industrial practices like redlining and steering and until we really take a look at some of the uh, issues that are perpetuating this problem, folks, uh, our BIPOC communities, uh, our uh, minority populations that are really just trying to live in a community and raise their family and love the school districts just as much as anybody else does. Um, until we break this practice, a little wink, wink, hey, you know, it's, it's harmless. Um, until we break that practice, we're gonna continue uh the discriminatory um um the the ability for sellers to discriminate based on their preferences and while they can google and do all the research they want i just think it's not uh it's not uh appropriate for professionals real estate professionals to uh continue the practice
0: So this bill that directs uh, the seller's agent to reject that kind of communications, to to, to reject a a personalized letter from the buyer, does it go as far as well, then, what would stop uh, the agent from from verbally hearing from a buyer and passing that on to the other agent?
5: That's fine. You still do it. But the agent has to be careful of not breaking, you know, uh, the fair housing laws. Right now in Oregon, we have fiduciary duties and uh, part of one of our fiduciary duties is communications. We have to pass along all written communications that our buyer instructs us to to the seller or seller's agent. Um, So the free speech practice is still allowed. If they instruct me to do so, we will do so as the buyer's agent. But as a seller's agent, this law will keep the practice from perpetuating and, st- and, and putting the brakes on stating that is not uh, relevant to the purchase price. We are going to, you know, we, we need to get to the point that we're allowing folks to purchase and, and sell homes based on the qualifications of that buyer. And whatever competitive market it is, I know it's very difficult and it's, and it's frustrating. But until we break that practice, it will continue, and these implicit biases will continue and and it's uh um it's unfortunate that it has gotten to this point, but um it, a lot of real estate agencies or offices already disallow that practice, but they can't you know keep their you know agents from having to comply with our fiduciary duties
0: right and do you see examples is it mainly? potential buyers that that go about putting these letters together and writing the letters and, as you said, submitting the photos, do they do that as a tactic to, again, try to get that upper hand? Or or do you also see sellers asking potential buyers to write the letters so they use those as a tool?
5: It it is both. It is both. And it obviously has been successful. And, um, you know, my clients many times, first-time home buyers will ask me, should I write a letter, you know? in years past, I would say, yeah, let's do what we can. And, and it, with technology, it got to the point that we could just snap a quick photo of the family and attach it to, and I've been on the receiving end as a seller's agent, um, where we received multiple offers on a property, and uh, my client ended up uh, accepting a lower price based on, uh, they were uh, a Catholic uh, family And they were excited to see that the children of this offer were going to be going to school three blocks away at this Catholic school and church. Hmm. And so they based their decision off of of more personal bias versus qualifications. And um, while I think that's fantastic that that family did get the home, um, who's to say what the other party's circumstances were? Uh, if not more urgent if in their own personal you know life, so it's it's just um it's it's it works, and is it appropriate? I don't think so. Uh,
0: so what happens now with this bill? I understand it goes uh, to the governor's desk, or do you think will this actually mm-hmm. go into place? and if so, when will it actually stop uh, allowing these personalized yeah. letters?
5: Yeah, it uh, goes to the governor's uh, desk for signature. I believe she's willing to uh, sign on to this and uh, pass it into law. It will become effective January first of 2022. Uh, we will send notice to um, the real estate commissioner to notify all offices. And uh, as as a practicing you know real estate agent and somebody involved with our associations, I was in leadership in our uh, local and state associations. I I know we tried to uh, educate our our um, members of what's, you know, how to really be professionals. So we would be, you know, I'm sure part of our associations will alert uh, agents of the, you know, the discontinuing of that practice and preparing how to deal with it. Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, Mark, Me starting,
5: starting next year. Oh. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much. It's something that happens so much in B.C. as well with also a a very competitive uh, market, much like it is in Oregon. But thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. Thank you,
5: Jill. I appreciate it. It was great talking to you. I appreciate it. And I hope people really understand the purpose behind this. So thank you for getting the message out.